Good morning. I'm going to start with a question. How's your faith? You may think, like, that's a strange question to start off with. But we're going through the book of James, if you're new here today. We've been going through the book of James, and James' primary theme is living out your faith. He says, living out your faith is more than being a hearer of the word, but it's a matter of being a doer of the word as well. So how are you doing in your faith? A few weeks ago, it was raining, and the green belts in the place that we live filled up with water. And I see that, and it just looks like a, there's a lake in the middle of the place, and I think that's, wow. And my kids see it, and they just, they're amazed by it. So they run to the house, they want to grab their skim boards, and they get a skim board in the desert. But I'm thinking, no, that's disgusting. Because it's stagnant water, right? So there's fertilizer, there's chemicals, there's all kinds of stuff. Because in the desert, water pools up, and it's stagnant, dead, stink water. My kids love to play in it. And James is saying this. If we're receiving the word, we're receiving the community of the body of Christ, but we're not living out our faith, we're like that stagnant, stinking water. So he calls us to live out the fullness of our Christian faith, to be hearers of the words as well as doers of the word. Our text comes today from James chapter 4. If you'd like to read, read along with me, please open up your Bibles. James is towards the end of the New Testament after the book of Hebrews. We'll read from James 4, 1 through verse 11. James asks his hearers with a scathing indictment. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your word today, and we open up our hearts. Come and speak to us. We're available. We want to hear from you. We turn off all the noise and the busyness of our week, and we sit down with one another. Would you please cause your word to speak into this time? We desperately need it. Lift up Christ today. Guard the words of my mouth. Encourage the saints. 
pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a news story of a congregational meeting. We're about to have a, a congregational meeting here in a couple weeks. There's a news story that came out about a congregational meeting that things started kind of go south. And as things precipitated, it became an all-out fisticuffs brawl. Elders and deacons and pastors were punching each other out. It got so bad that eventually the cops had to be called in to just clear the carnage of everything. And unfortunately, these type of stories, although this one is particularly shocking, these kind of stories are, are a little bit familiar. We think church and religion has often seemed like such a divisive and controversial, even within the church. There's so much fighting. Here's another example. There's a father who's inside. He's relaxing a Saturday afternoon, reading the newspaper, and he hears a skirmish in the backyard. Oh, no. I know what this is. So he walks outside. It's fighting. It's yelling. And he says, what's going on? He intervenes. What's going on? And his daughter pipes up. Don't worry, Dad. We're just playing church. (laughs) So church often in our culture, has been equated with warfare. It shouldn't be. We're the people of God. We're supposed to be a demonstration of the kingdom of God. But unfortunately, this is true. And James, that's precisely what James is calling out in this passage. It should not be. We should be living in the wisdom from above, as Pastor Scott spoke about last week, not the wisdom from below. But it's true. We have a tendency, I think this is the heart of it, to promote ourselves. And as we promote ourselves, there's bitter conduct, bitter rivalries and conflict. So what's the main problem here? It's this. If left alone in our own human nature, we choose to promote ourselves. Left alone. God doesn't intervene. We are going to do this. We're going to promote ourselves. And this is the thrust I want us to be thinking of today. Since God gives us grace in Christ, God has given us gracious help in Christ We must break away from the world, from the pride of the world, and walk humbly with Christ. There's only two points in this sermon. Some people call this a Texas sermon because there's two points in a lot of, never mind, we'll we'll leave that alone there. But I'm going to try to speak faithfully from the word of God today. And the two points are these. I think we can draw from the text pretty clearly. The first point is this. First five verses, the problem. James is going to go all in and describe the problem in the church. The second point, in a very James fashion, is going to be what we can do about it. Because James is about doing. He's not just going to bring up the problem and let it go. This is what we can do about it. So James here is talking to a group of Christians who are apparently in love with the world. This is the problem. No one exactly is sure what the problem was, this specific problem that was going on. Some people speculate, some of the best commentators speculate that it was a rivalry between uh, men who wanted to be influential in the church. And it doesn't sound much different than today. Unfortunately, we've heard of several scandals, even over just the last year or two, of influential men who have plummeted because of self-promotion. I remember the, the church I, uh, I, I visited in seminary with a famous pastor and written several books and just an amazing uh, man of God. And you saw his, I saw his uh, ministry implode right there because of this 
the nature of these things, self-promotion. If you look in your ESV Bible, or in an ESV Bible, there's a heading that the editors have put for this chapter, and they call it a warning against worldliness. So James is warning his congregation about the worldliness that he's seeing in them. But this word worldliness raises all kinds of questions. There's a lot of baggage with that word. What does worldliness mean? I can remember the church I grew up in, the pastor would conduct the wedding ceremony, and then we'd all go to the reception. But as soon as the music started, he was gone. Is dancing worldly? Is music worldly? Is it a way of dressing? Perhaps worldliness is a love for earthly things like art, food, camping, sports, cigars, movies, nice clothing. Is that what James is talking about? You've fallen in love with these things of the earth? I remember meeting my wife 10 years, 8 months and some change ago. And my friend and I were both in the small group that she attended, and we both kind of noticed this beautiful woman walk in the room. And he's like elbowing me like, hey, we need to talk to her. I mean, I need to talk to her. So he's uh, talking about her, and I'm thinking, I can see why he's saying that because she's a beautiful woman. She's extremely beautiful. I think she was the most beautiful woman in the whole town. But as I looked at her, her hair was nice. She wore nice clothing. And I thought, she's got to be worldly looking like that. Come to find out, well, you, you, all, you all probably know me and that guy aren't the best of friends anymore, sadly. Come to find out that woman was so godly, so humble. She's so much more godly than I am. So what is true worldliness? What is James talking about? What is he warning about here? It's the definition, I think, that, that gets to the, the point of this. This theologian says that our view of worldliness is often way too superficial. This is what he says worldliness truly is. At its center, worldliness is our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. So true worldliness is not all those things out there like a lure, like a fishing lure waiting to get us. It's actually something way more insidious. It's something that lives inside of us. It's a heart issue. It's like a virus. And we've all got it. James' listeners vied for prominent position in community. It's class conflicts, desire to be a rabbi, leaving the church after Sabbath, ignoring the poor. These things truly reveal the heart of self-promotion. I know I'm in my 40s, but <clears throat> I'm starting to recognize uh, how to use uh, social media. And um, I'm learning these things. Like there's some opportunities for self-promotion in there. So as I go to my picture scroll and I think, what am I going to post about my vacation, uh, honeymoon with our anniversary with my wife, I scroll through. You go through the first 200 photos and then you find that one where you look so good that you could be on a GQ magazine and you post that one. Facebook reminds you at the end of the year how many likes you've gotten. You can just take a bubble bath of likes just with all those little hearts just, ah, doesn't that feel good? 
Just marinate in it. Instagram filters. I'm, like I said, I'm 42. Wrinkles, gone. I can even get a cute little heart nose. Puppy ears. <laughs> However, we don't want to demonize social media. Social media is not the enemy. It's actually simply just a reflector. It's a heart reflector. It can't create any light of its own. It simply reflects what's going on right here. What's going on inside of us? So what we discover, if we came to church, what would we discover if we came to church on Sunday and instead of our time for confession, as Josh led us in, reading through a confession, what if one Sunday we just said, hey, let's just put up everything that we have, put it in our search engine this week. Let's look at our search history. You know what we would learn? We'd learn the bent of our heart. Would it, what would pop up? The vacations I'm looking for for my friends? Would it look up the car I'm looking for to buy my friend? What would it pop up? I'm afraid we'd all be exposed, wouldn't we? Self-promotion, pride of heart. We discover a lot about each other's hearts. The root of all this and what I think James is really talking about is pride. Pride of heart. C.S. Lewis writes this about pride. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any person except Christians ever imagine that they're guilty of themselves. It's a virus, and we each have it. It's pride. I want the best for me. I'm looking out for number one. James goes on to describe this, this virus. Look in verse 1. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? These passions, these longings, these desires, these pleasures that we long for are roiling inside of us. And they want to get out. They're looking for an opportunity. Have you ever been in a situation where you've seen a fight happen right in front of you? Maybe it's a physical fight. And just the utter like intensity of that moment just captures you. And what you're seeing right there is that volcano of worldly desires and passions and self-promotion is erupting. And it's manifesting. This is what I think. I'm the greatest. I'm about to show you. Sometimes it happens through an argument that we see. It just cuts someone to the core. What causes quarrels and fights among you? It's your passions. There's a war going on inside of you. You're a living war zone. That's what James is saying. So this is all self-promotion. And envy, it's like a shaken up can of soda, just waiting to make its way out. Let's not also forget the subtle ways that erupts, because James has been talking to us throughout his book about the implicit manifestations of pride, ignoring the poor and the like. But he, he wants us to also be aware of these. There's subtle ways. It's not always an outright fight, but it's quiet things that lurk. Ignoring the poor, being quick to speak, the inability to listen to others, quickness to get angry, 
If you can't stand to see your friend, your brother, or your neighbor get a promotion or get something that you've been wanting. There's a war going on inside. And it's being revealed. No, I want. I want. And James speaks of this pride with some of the strongest language. What he's been saying through this book implicitly, as I said, he's now saying explicitly. And you can see that as we look at verse 4. James, James changes his way of addressing his audience from brothers and sisters to this. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That's strong language. Some of us know the pain of what that word means, that adulterous word. and It feels so intense, but James, I think, knows the gravity of that word. It's, not, it's an allusion often used throughout the Old Testament, and in his culture, that was an in, explicitly trying and difficult and heinous sin. And yet he's still applying it here. And you see that he does clearly censure uh, adultery with the world, but he goes even a step further and he says, even friendship with the world is setting yourself against God. So seeking these pleasures, putting ourselves in self-promotion, it's not simply just flirting with some things on the side, but it's walking away from God, saying, I got something else. I got another Lord that I'm listening to. James is saying, do you not know that worldliness is separation from God? Pride of the heart. We all have it. We're all infected with it. It's not someone else out there. It lives in each one of us. I can remember um, my high school year still, and I was a great athlete. Only problem was my coaches didn't realize it. That's why this, uh, this story is taking place with me on the sidelines on the football field. So my high school, senior year, I got my gear on, got my Bellevue West Thunderbirds jersey, all my pads. I'm feeling like a beast. I'm standing on the sidelines, though. My girlfriend's in the stands, and I'm like, let's go, Bellevue West. But as, I, as, the, as the game goes on, I realize I'm standing on the sideline a lot right now. And what I noticed is, as I think back to that moment, something switched in me. And I went from being one of the Bellevue West Thunderbirds football teammates to a football team of one. Because my heart turned, and as I watched my, my friends on the field, I began to think, I don't care if you get beat. And I looked at my coach, and I thought, I hope you lose this game because I'm on the sidelines. I want to be influencing. If I'm not going to influence the win, I want us to lose. That, my friends, is the ugly pride and self-promotion of the heart that I think James is speaking about. I was on the sidelines. I wasn't feeling it. I lost my commitment to others, and it was pride. I found this great question in response to this text, wherein, what ways have these antithetical competing loyalties intruded into our souls unwittingly? How can we learn to detect the pride that's going on in our hearts? 
James says it's there. How can we become aware of it? I commend to you the word of God. Reading God's word. Putting authority higher than our own self. Something greater, something beautiful. Something grander than what we can think of or conceive of ourselves. The psalmist writes in 119, verses 103 through 105, How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Without the word of God, we're bound to go to our heart, to look to our heart for instruction, and go towards self-promotion, self-glory, we bring the word of God into our lives. We have truth and beauty. Another way that we can examine our hearts is through worship. Let's move aside our self-promotion. Let's turn our eyes upward. Let's look. Let's give our praise. Let's give our affections to God. It's a pretty awesome sermon, isn't it? Just come in and hear how prideful you are. This is what brings people in every week. Well, ultimately, we must choose between the love of God and the love of the world. The reality is that without the help of the Holy Spirit, without the help of God, we will always choose ourselves. We will always choose self-promotion. We will always live on the losing end of that inward heart battle. Let's move to point two. We have pride. What should we do about it? we only had these first five, five verses, we'd be in deep trouble. But everything changes at verse 6. And for some reason, when I read this verse, excuse me, I hear Barry White's voice. Um, Barry White was a, was a jazzy, kind of like brooding, deep voice singer back in the day. And this is how the verse reads. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. And if you look at the Greek word for more, it actually means greater. He gives a greater grace, a more powerful grace than our prideful, selfish heart. Greater here suggests, as one put it, the ability of God and the willingness of God to overcome sinful willfulness. He gives us grace potent enough to meet this and every other evil spirit. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The point of this second, what to do about it is to embrace humility, to go after, to run after a life of humility. Augustine said this because I think each one of us may be thinking, how am I going to do this? I know my sin sinful inclinations. Lord, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But Augustine says this, God gives what he demands. If he's demanded us to do something, he's going to give us the resources to walk in it. Just like that mother who says, hey, you're going to have to clean your whole room, wash the bathroom, the bathroom uh, mirrors, countertops, and the, and the five-year-old feels overwhelmed at this task. Like, how am I going to do that by myself? And then the mother gently comes in and brings that help. Mother or father, I help with those things. Gently comes and says, hey, 
I'll help you do that. Do you need help? God provides the resources. So this is a call to repentance and a turn towards humility. And we remember once again, repentance isn't just simply, okay, I'm going to do all these things now. I'm going to do the right stuff. But repentance is more accurately a turning from your sinful ways, from your prideful disposition, and an orientation towards God. I'm turning to you, God. I'm looking to you. You're my source. You're my strength. So James is going to give us at least seven things here that we can do. But we need to remember that it's this. God gives us the grace to do these things. Isaiah 53, 6 through 7 uh, tells us of the coming Messiah, and it says that, matter of fact, there's been one who's already forged the way and showed us how to live a life of humility on earth. And Isaiah speaks of our Lord like this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he owned not his own mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So we follow the lamb into these seven ways of repenting and turning towards a life of humility. We follow the lamb, Jesus Christ, who left all glory and submitted to a life on earth as a human being. The first way that James calls us to follow the lamb is this. You can find it in verse 7. He says, submit to God. Some of us have made vows. I will never submit to someone again because I've been hurt. I've been abused. But James calls us to submit to God, and this isn't what you've experienced before because our God draws us in to a loving and gracious relationship. And as we bow down and as we submit before him, he actually beautifies us. Just like the song says, hearts unfold like flowers before him. As we're planted in the soil of humility, we actually unfold and our true beauty comes out. So submitting isn't this demeaning, demoralizing, oppressive structure that we've seen. No, submission to God is actually beautifying, it's strengthening, it's empowering. So James invites us into this richness. Submit yourselves to God. We also follow the Lamb as we resist the devil. We remember Jesus doing this, right? He demonstrated the way. He went to the wilderness, and the devil kept coming and using Scripture and attacking him. Jesus spoke back and responded with Scripture. He resisted the enemy. This means to stand against. We're standing against the enemy. No, I'm not going to submit to that life. I feel the pull. I feel the tug. And I've fallen before, but I'm going to say no. When I fall again, I'm going to get back up and I'm going to resist. And James gives us this encouragement that he will flee. If this is your lifestyle, I'm getting back up again. I may have gotten knocked down, but I'm getting back up again. I'm going to resist you again. James said that this lifestyle leads to the devil fling. You will overcome. You can be encouraged. We also follow the lamb as we have intentional relationship with God. The verse says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Once again, we see Christ often going away to get time alone with God. And it wasn't a robotic, I need to just be a faithful follower of Christ and get my 
30 minutes, get my one hour in every morning. No, God has invited us into a gracious relationship. It's not oppressive. It's come in and enjoy the Lord. Come in and let your heart unfold. When I think of prayer time, I don't think so much of duty. Some days I do, but, but often I think it's my opportunity to fall on my knees and say, God, I'm so broken. Will you help me? You carry my load. I give it all to you. I give you my junk. It says, draw near to God. And just like the prodigal son, as he came near to God, as he drew near to his father's house, what happened? His father comes out and he runs after him. He runs to meet him. When you go to your quiet time, when you go to seek the Lord, whether it's in the car or in your prayer closet, the Lord runs to meet you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's not an oppressive system. It's an opportunity. It's an invitation to live under God's lordship. To win the battle of your heart. Next thing we see is James saying, wash your hands and purify your hearts. And once again, we go to, I've been a bad boy. We think of a child who's, who's gotten to the cookie jar and they have cookies all over them. And they have chocolate all over their hands and they're wiping it on everything nearby them. And you say, go wash your hands, your dirty little hands, your scummy little hands. But no, that's not the picture. Once again, we so are often to go to this route. But I think what James is saying here is there's an invitation to experience the purity and the cleansing of a relationship with Christ. Washing your hands, purifying your hearts is actually a beautiful thing. When you come before the Lord, you boldly enter before the throne room of grace and God cleanses you. He washes your hands. He purifies your hearts, not with your own works that anyone should boast, but with the blood of Christ. It says, I love you. I got you. I can handle that. You're clean. James also goes on and says we follow the lamb as we grieve. Contrite hearts. This is an opportunity again. It's a brokenness over sin. He's not looking once again for a robotic relationship where you come in and say, oh, forgive me, Father, this is what I've done wrong, and tell me how to get out of it. He's saying no. Bring your heart to the table. Grieve. The world often says, no, enjoy now and pay later, just like rented furniture. You rent it and you're enjoying it. Oh, this is so good. Then you look like a, a two years later, you're still not done paying for it and it has holes all over it. No, the, James is calling us to something greater. Come in. Grieve now and rejoice later. The life of Christ, once again on display, came in suffering, wounded, persecuted, betrayed, ultimately killed, humiliated, naked on a cross. But now he's glorified. James goes on and says, We also follow the Lamb as we say, as we humble ourselves and let him lift you up. And once again, if you look at the Greek here, humble is in the passive form. So another reading may be, let yourself be humbled under the mighty hand of God. Are you going through something crushing right now? James says that crushing experience that you're in is an opportunity to allow the circumstances in your life to humble you. Allow it to happen. 
Don't be like the snake. When it gets stepped on, it bites. Be like the worm. Let your humbling circumstances crush you. And let the Lord revive you. Because there's a promise in the word. If you humble yourself, if you let yourself be humbled by your circumstances, he will lift you up. He will lift you up. And when he lifts you up, no one puts you down. The final one, final way that James teaches us how to respond to the pride in our hearts, he says we follow the lamb as we refuse to speak evil against one another. So this is we refuse every impulse and opportunity to speak slanderously, harsh words against others. You ever been invited into a conversation you feel privy? I'm being invited into this, but then the conversation is destructive towards another. James says, forsake that. Don't be a part of that. God seeks us. He gives us grace to do each one of these things. It's not by your works. It's not by your own effort. It's not pulling up your bootstraps. It's saying, God, give me the grace to live the life of humility. And guess what? The word says he will do it. One of my favorite Christian authors, one of my favorite authors, I'll say to keep it on the down low, okay, is Francine Rivers. She does kind of like a historical kind of Christian fiction. And this story that she wrote is called Redeeming Love, and it takes place in the gold rush. It's a Western about the Bible. So it's kind of interesting. The gold rush in 1850, and... It's about a young woman whose name is Angel, and she expects nothing from men but betrayal. See, she was sold into prostitution as a child, and the only way that she survives by keeping, is by keeping her hate alive. She hates men. She's been used. She's been abused, and that hate now functions for her, and she cherishes it. But there was a turn of events in her life when God told this man named Michael Hosea, you go into that brothel today and you don't do anything ungodly and unseemly, but you go and you purchase that woman. You go and purchase Angel and you treat her with dignity. Don't touch her. Love her. Lavish your kindness on her. Protect her. Feed her. Speak your love to her. Slowly, day by day, Michael Hosea defies Angel's bitter expectation until, despite her resistance, her, until, despite her resistance, her frozen heart begins to thaw. God has invited us into a relationship. It's not oppression. He's not an abuser. He's gentle. The Bible describes him as lowly. He says, take my yoke upon you because it's easy and my burden is light. And I long to treat you as a son. I long to treat you as a daughter. Come on in. Move into relationship with me. Seek the humble life. Win the battle of the heart. I have the antidote. Jesus Christ, who left perfection, he came to earth. And he suffered for us to invite us into a relationship with him. How can we help but be doers of the word? We're receiving so much fresh 
living water. May the words of this passage stir your hearts to the sweetness of a relationship with Jesus. Heavenly Father, we ask today that you would work through your word and by your Holy Spirit to give us victory, victory over our heart. You remove pride from us. You give us the power to be doers of the word, people who participate in the gracious and beautiful relationship you've invited us into and your son has paved the way for. We love you, Father. Have your way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.